Let's go ahead and get started tonight. <clears throat> We're going to be in chapter 4. Um, Dad uh, haphazardly tried to cover part of chapter 4 in the last 30 minutes, 30 seconds of class on Sunday, and I, I told him that wasn't a good idea. I tried to reprimand him for that. So hopefully, hopefully we're going to cover a little bit, um, not harp too much on the first part of chapter 4, but cover a couple of things and uh, Lord willing get into chapter 5 as well here in just a moment. I've asked Tyler if he would to uh, lead us in prayer as we begin. Let's begin here just by reading the text of chapter 4. The most important thing we're going to do tonight is we're going to read the text. And everything that I'm going to say is just going to be a footnote on the text. And hopefully just draws some connections for us and helps us to understand it a little bit. But this is the most important thing that we can do. But pay attention as, as I go through here, as I'm reading chapter 4. Notice how... The, the, the narrative of the ark being stolen is just repeated twice. You're going to notice some of these key phrases that are pushing the narrative along, and they're going to be mentioned at the beginning, kind of a first-hand account of, of the war of uh, the battlefield, and then a second-hand account as Eli hears it and then subsequently uh, dies after hearing that the ark has been taken. So pay attention to this. The central theme here is the Ark of the Lord, is the presence of the Lord. And Samuel just completely drops off of the, the table here. He's not mentioned in the next couple of chapters. So this is completely about the Ark of the Lord and the Philistines and everybody's relationship with the Ark of the Lord and how they treat it. Okay, so let's pay attention to that. Beginning in the second half of verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. 
And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid and they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, so that they, as they have been to you, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Verse 12, a man of Bethlehem ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. Excuse me, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? And he, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people, for your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy and he judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her, for her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about that time, about the time of her, of her death, the women attending her said, do not be afraid for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She said, she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory of Israel, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of the Lord has been captured. Okay, so here we are. We're at Ebenezer. Now, what does, what does the word Ebenezer mean? Stone of help. Stone of help. Now, in context of this story, what we're about to see, that seems to ring a little hollow. The Lord does not help Israel here in this case. I want to come back to this, Lord willing, if we have time at the end of chapter 4 because I think that there are some good points to be made that we're going to see soon um, a little later in chapter 7, some points of contrast that we can make. So I want to come back to that. So remember that rock of help 
is what Ebenezer means. And so here uh, they're encamping, they're battling with the Philistines here, and they go into battle with the Philistines, and they lose. They lose 4,000 men here in this encounter with the Philistines. And they ask a good question after, after the loss. They say, why has the Lord defeated us today? But what is conspicuously missing here? They didn't inquire of the Lord again. Absolutely. Absolutely. They didn't inquire of the Lord to begin with, it doesn't seem. They're just already involved in this war as soon as we see them. Then when they lose the battle, they ask a good question, but they're asking each other. So this is a good question to ask. God, why have we been defeated in this battle? But instead of asking God, instead of inquiring of Samuel, instead of seeing, okay, what is going on here? They're asking each other. They're, they're talking with one another. It's always better for us to consult the Lord than to consult, than to consult each other. We are much worse counselors than God is. And you see that here in the, in the following verses. In verse 3, the elders have a good idea. They are going to take to themselves the Ark of the Covenant, which is in Shiloh. It seems like there's a pronoun that doesn't really need to be there. They're going to take to themselves the Ark of the Covenant. I think the idea here is that God is nowhere in this picture. I, they're just going to grab the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to use it. Use it like it's a lucky rabbit's foot. And they're just going to hope for the best in this battle with the Philistines. In case we weren't sure if this was a good idea or not, who is mentioned in connection with the grabbing of the Ark of the Covenant here? The end of verse 4, I believe it is. The two sons of Eli. Yeah, yeah. Hophni and Phinehas are mentioned in connection with grabbing the Ark of the Covenant. So if we were still on the fence about whether this was a good idea or not, I think Hophni and Phinehas is being involved tips, tips a hat to, to the fact that this is a bad idea. Hophni and Phinehas are fully behind it. And the Lord is not sought at all in this, as we've mentioned. And it's, it's just sort of unbelievable that they can be seeking out the ark of the Lord and all of these things and yet not seeking the Lord in the process. These two things should not go without each other. So they grab the ark of the covenant. And as soon as they come into the camp, there's a great shout. They're excited. But this victory shout is a little premature. What's, what's at the root here is the fact that they are not willing to change who they are. The Israelites are not willing to look deeper at why did we lose this battle. Well, obviously we see the picture in the, broader, in the broader picture here, we're in a time period of the judges. We've got even the priests are such sinful people. We can see very clearly that it's the people's sin that have caused this, this loss in battle. 
But instead of trying to find the root of the problem, the Israelites are, are looking to just solve it quickly. Instead of looking at themselves and their shortcomings and their sinfulness, they just look to get this, this box, the Ark of the Covenant, and bring it into battle. Now, the Philistines' response here is fear. They, they hear this shout. They hear how excited the Israelites are when the Ark of the Lord comes into the camp. And they are terrified. At first, they have to ask. They say, what was this shouting? And somebody, somebody a lookout or, or something looks out and sees, you know, the Ark of the Lord has come into the camp. And they say, their gods have come into the camp. Now, the Philistines are not very theologically or historically sound here. They, they don't know that there's one God of the Israelites. They don't know that he's, uh, he's not this idol that's in this box. But they do know, they do know about the plagues of Egypt. They start saying to one another, these are the same gods that pulled the people out of Egypt, that brought the people up out of Egypt and sent plagues upon the people. We have no shot in this battle. So they, they gather each other together, they fire each other up, and they say, be men and fight. And they fight, and they rout Israel. They rout Israel again, this time way worse than the first time. 40,000 people... It's interesting that in Hebrew, the same word is used when the, the Philistines are talking about in verse 8 that the Lord struck the Egyptians with plagues. The same word is used again for what the Philistines did to Israel. They struck the Philistines just as, or they struck the Israelites just as they were afraid that God was going to do to them. But God is not with Israel, and so Israel is struck. Instead of God being with Israel and on their side doing the striking, uh, Israel is struck. I think it's interesting, though, we've, we have a note here very briefly of how many men are defeated, but it's kind of glossed over. The things that are focused on are that Hophni and Phinehas have died. And that the ark of God was taken. Remember in chapters 2 and 3, this is what's prophesied to Eli. Hophni and Phinehas are going to die on the same day. And so what the author is focused on here is, is not the details of, of the loss in battle per se, but the theological ideas behind it. God is true in keeping his promises. What he said is going to come to pass. Punishment is going to come upon those who do wickedly and who lead the people of Israel as they have done in a wicked path. And so this is the focus here of, of this narrative is that God is going to punish wickedness. Mary. Joshua 
and they were strong because of God. They were behind God. God was behind them. Whereas here, just, it was interesting to see the contrast there. Excellent. Yeah, very good. I, a secular version of, of what Joshua was, was told, right? Be strong in the Lord uh, is what he is told. Be strong and be like men is, is what the Philistines tell each other. This is something that never should have worked. If this is God versus a bunch of, a bunch of uh, soldiers, this is not a battle that, that the soldiers are ever going to win. Um, but because the Lord is fighting against Israel here, then, then the Philistines are able to be victorious. Very good. We see here uh, the failure of Israel as they have so many times. First of all, they failed to see what God would have them to do. And when they lost, again, they failed to turn to God uh, and ask Him what He would have them to do. They thought the power was in the ark of the covenant. As important as it is, the power was not there. The power was in Jehovah, and that's what they needed to turn to. And another thing they failed to do, what was one of the things they were to do when they came into the land and defeat the land? Besides, besides running everybody out of the land, what was all this for? That they may know that I am the Lord. The Philistines didn't know this. They sought gods and not the Lord. So that's another thing. Yeah, that is a good point. It, you do see, you see the consequences throughout, and like you, you stated in the first part of that point there, you see the consequences of not obeying God in so many different ways. When you don't destroy everybody when you're supposed to, when you don't go through the land, you don't wipe everybody out when you're supposed to, like I told you to, this is what's going to happen. This is going to keep rearing its head throughout the book of, of Samuel. Um, and so, yes, absolutely. And then they should have known who God was. Now, they do have some vague idea of, of the works that he's done, but they should have been even more familiar with, with the works that, that God has done. The purpose of the conquest was to create a nation that, is, that knows God and is dependent upon God. But if those who are trying to be examples, those who are set up to be examples, aren't even seeking the Lord, then how can, how can we expect those people to be evangelists as well? So, first and foremost, they have to be willing to seek the Lord like we see Ezra doing, and then they can turn and be evangelists to other people and teach the Word to other people. Very good thoughts there. Okay? Um, so then the second, the second telling here of, of this narrative of the ark being captured there is a man from Benjamin, and he runs to tell the news. Um, so he runs and he tells the news. And when he tells it in the town, there is an outcry. People are yelling, people are screaming, much like um, the Israelites were yelling when the ark was brought into the, into the battlefield. So here... People are yelling, people are crying out in fear, in terror, in despair because they have been, they have been destroyed. And they're hearing this news that, is, that this, this uh, messenger is, is telling them. 
Um, so he comes in, there's an outcry, but Eli can't hear it. So he asks, what's being said? What, what's this outcry about? Again, just like the Philistines earlier, the Philistines had had to ask, uh, what is this outcry for? Why are they screaming? Why are they yelling? So here, again, um, Eli has to ask, what is this outcry about? And the messenger comes over to him and he says, I've just come from the lines. He repeats himself here. I think it's interesting. Uh, He says, I'm the one who came from the lines. I fled from the battle lines today. Maybe he's out of breath. Maybe he's nervous. um, But he's kind of stammering. He's repeating himself. And he says, the Philistines have defeated us all. And uh, your, your two sons have died. And the ark of God is taken. And at what point in this narrative does Eli actually fall and die? Yes, at the news that the ark has been taken. That is that is such an interesting thought to me. We've seen Eli to not be a particularly strong character in the book of Samuel so far. We've seen him not leading his his sons in a right way. Um, Maybe maybe you can make a good argument that he is leading Samuel in a good way. Um, But here we do see a positive thing from Eli. That what he is worried about, what he is concerned about, is the ark of the Lord and its misuse, and he is heartbroken when it's when it's taken. Well, in the past, wasn't he told that there would be something that they hadn't seen before, and that his two sons would die on the same day? Okay, take the first two points. Israel defeated. They hadn't seen that of this group. They're not seen that before, and he was already told about his two sons. So that's okay. I was told that was going to happen. But when it was said that the Ark of the Covenant, that was news he had not expected. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So this is this is when he's a hundred percent sure that, that God has fulfilled this prophecy. That's interesting. I like that. Okay, so he he falls from his chair and he dies. When, when he hears this news. Where was Eli when we first saw him? Seated, seated out there in front, of the, in front of the tabernacle. In his last moments, we see him seated again. Is this the picture that you have in your mind of a, of a leader? In this case, does this seem like the leader that you want? There's a battle going on out there. And your spiritual leader is is seated, waiting for the news of what happens. This This is not what you want out of your leader. I found this point to be interesting. And hopefully I can express it in a way that's clear. And if I can't, maybe dad can... Can, can do a better job of this. But there, there is a, just a close similarity. The root word in Hebrew for glory and the root word for heavy is exactly the same as I understand it. So 
you have here at the, at the end of this story, and I see now I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I'll introduce it so we can look out for it. Glory is about to be used here in a little bit at the very end of the chapter. The word glory is going to be used. Here in, in this case, in, in, in verse 18, when Eli falls from the chair, it's mentioned that he is heavy. He is a heavy old man. So here at the end of the story, there's one more casualty here at the end of the story that we hadn't gotten to that I just realized as, as I started down that path. You have Phineas's wife who is about to give birth and she hears the news. The messenger comes, she starts hearing the news and she's forced into labor. So she starts giving birth. It says that she bows down and gives birth to her, to her son. And she is about to die because this, this labor has come on so suddenly and she's just given birth. And so she's about to die. And they, they say to her, oh, don't worry, you've had, a, you've had a son. You've had a son. It's great. And she doesn't, she doesn't respond to that. But instead, she names the boy Ichabod. And she says, glory is exiled from Israel. Glory has been taken away from Israel. And the reason she says this, she knows about her husband. She knows about Eli. She doesn't actually mention those things. The thing that she is worried about, the thing that she's upset about, the reason that glory has departed from Israel is because the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. The Ark of the Covenant has been taken. Glory has been exiled from Israel. It's hopeless. Okay, so the word glory and the word heavy in the Hebrew are the same root word. So the word uh, for glory is kavod, and the, the, root, uh, the word for heavy is kaved. And I'm sure I'm, sure I'm pronouncing those flawlessly. So don't, don't even ask about it. Um, but you, so you can see how similar these two words are, okay? So let's think about here for a second. Eli, who is the leader of Israel, who is the spiritual leader of Israel, he is the one who is supposed to be guiding the people to a better life, focused on God, being an example to other people. He is supposed to, as a priest, exhibit glory. He is supposed to be a vessel of glory to the people of Israel. But instead, what does he exhibit? What does he, what is he a vessel of? Heaviness. Think back to, to um, chapter 1 and 2. You've got Eli, Hophni and Phinehas introduced. This is specifically in chapter 2. You've got Hophni and Phinehas mentioned. And what are they always doing? They're always grabbing for meat. Um, and, and then whenever, whenever somebody brings a sacrifice, they won't even let them cook it first. They say, I don't like it cooked that way. Give it to me. I'm going to cook it the way I like it. And so there's a gluttony that is surrounding the priesthood. And maybe this is a hint that Eli is... 
is somewhat complicit and is taking part in some of these things instead of being an example of glory, showing the people, being an intercessor, an, an intermediator between the people and God, showing God's glory to the people, he is instead abusing his priestly power. He's not leading the people in the way that he should. He is exhibiting heaviness. And because of this, he dies and he's responsible in a big way for the plight of the nation here in this battle as they, they lose because of their lack of devotion and focus upon God. Does that make some sense? Is that, is that, is that explained somewhat, somewhat okayly? Uh, another thing that uh, looking at the world itself as well is also sometimes referred to as a burden. He was a burden. His family was a burden to Israel. Yes. And see the blessing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a, that's a good word to use. Absolutely. Absolutely. No glory because the glory has left Israel. And really when you look at the, the rest of the book, maybe a good way to summarize the rest of the book is an attempt to restore glory to Israel. An attempt to bring the focus of the people of Israel back to God. And, well, and that's, that's the point of the Bible more broadly. It's people having sinned, having fallen short, and God is wanting to restore His glory and His, His name to them. Um, and I think that's something that we're going to see really, really beautifully in, in the books of First and Second Samuel. Any other thoughts there on chapter 4? David? Well, I, I did, the pronouns do get pretty dicey there. I took it that it was kind of a dying breath of hers. Is, is, that, is that any more clear in the Hebrew than it is in English? It is a uh, feminine third person singular. But, okay, I couldn't tell so you that from English. To, it would probably refer to uh, the mother. Okay, Most okay. Things. Well, in the ESV, it was restrained. About the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid to be born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named a child. Uh, it seems like the last she is. 
Elkan is yeah is the wife yeah. Right. Yeah. That that is. It may be the difference between the women who were attending and she called the singular Okay. That seems to indicate. Okay. Here's another reversal. The comfort they wanted to give her before she died was she had a son, which is every woman's dream in Israel. But she was not comfortable because the glory had gone. And she wanted the creator of that. Yes, that's really good. There's something bigger here than this child having been born. You think about the the joy that that Hannah feels when Samuel is born, not only because she bore a son, but because she knows that he's going to be so useful to the Lord because of the, the promise that she has made to the Lord. You think about this, that the joy of having a child here, as you've said, does not outweigh the devastation that the ark being taken has brought. The really good, really good thought there. Uh, okay. Anything else there on, on chapter 4? I want to I say something else about, about the uh, Ebenezer uh, that, I found, that I found interesting to tie this story all together. So this, this is a place that it seemed from everything that I've looked at, it just seems really difficult to pin down exactly where it is. We're going to see Ebenezer mentioned in chapter 7 again. In chapter, in chapter 7, the, I don't think it's the same place. Uh, because in chapter 7, verse, verse 12, it's between Mizpah and Shen. But Ebenezer is also mentioned in this case. And I think there is a contrast between these chapters. I don't want to delve too deeply into this because I, I, I'm, we're about to study this. But I do want to mention a couple of things that really helped uh, draw this, this point about Ebenezer out here. So this is, this is Samuel. He is, he is working with the people. He's, he's teaching the people. Um, and in the beginning of chapter 7... He, the, the people's whole heart is not with the Lord. There, there's some idols that have crept in. There's some other things that are going on. And the people's whole heart is not with the Lord. And, and Samuel calls them together and he says, you have got to focus on the Lord. You've got to put away these idols and you've got to worship the Lord again. And so they, he says, assemble together. I'm going to intercede for you in verses 5 and 6. Get together. I'm going to uh, intercede for you. And the people say, you're right. We need to change. We need to do better. So I was reminded with that phrase of, of interceding that the... Um, remember Eli in, in chapter 2 when he's talking to Hophni and Phinehas and he says, Hey guys, you shouldn't be doing this. And if you do something wrong to someone else then there's going to be somebody who's going to intercede for you. But who can intercede for you when you have offended God? Samuel answers that question a couple of times later. The priest is supposed to intercede. That's the job of the priest, to be an intercessor 
between God and the people. So here they have a leader who is guiding them toward the Lord. He's standing in the gap. He's interceding between the people and the Lord. And he's, he's saying, you're doing wrong. You need to turn back to the Lord. And so when the Philistines hear that they're gathered together here in this place, they say, oh, we're going to get them. And so they come after them and the Israelites rout them. They defeat them completely because they were devoted to the Lord. They were listening to the Lord. They had a leader, a spiritual leader who was willing to stand up for them and who was willing to go to God for them, to inquire of the Lord for them. And what do they do in chapter, in verse 12? They set up a stone, Ebenezer, stone of help. So here in this, in this account, in chapter 4, here's an Ebenezer where... It should, there should be a stone of hell, but the people are not seeking the Lord. They are not looking to the Lord. So there is no stone of hell. The Lord is not there to help because their leadership is not focused on guiding them back to God. But when their leadership is focused on guiding them back to God and they're focused on God, this Ebenezer becomes a place where they are victorious. Absolutely. The, the, the point to take away from this is that we have got to cry out to God. We've got to remember that He is our stone of help. He is the one who is going to be with us no matter what. Um, and like you mentioned in there, how ridiculous is it not to call out to God, not to seek Him, 
and then you're upset. It's God's fault that you have not been victorious, that you don't get everything you want. When we're never pursuing God, we're not going to get what we want, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. Um, very good. Very good thoughts there. I, I, had, I had a note, too, uh, that the... Uh, you remember at the beginning and the, the judges at the beginning of the book of Judges and the Judges cycle is so structured. You know, you can really, you know, sin, punishment, cry out to God, deliverance. And it just goes every time and it's so it's so beautiful. And as the story goes on, it starts to break down and the people just never cry out to God. And he sends a deliverer anyway. This is exactly what we see here in in Samuel. The the judges cycle has broken down. The people are no longer crying out to the Lord. They're experiencing punishment. And they're upset that, that God would punish them. How, how could he punish us? We've just rejected him and disregarded him for all these years. How could he, how could he dare punish us? Um, absolutely. Very good. Very good thoughts there. Okay. Let's, uh, let's soldier on here. Uh, to, to chapter 5. Now, what, what would you be expecting in just a secular telling of history after a huge defeat like this? What might you expect? I, I would expect a, an account of what's going on in Shiloh. How about the, are there survivors? What's, what's going on in Shiloh? Um, what is the government looking like now? How has this affected everything? That's what you would expect normally. The, the author here of, of Samuel doesn't care about that. He focuses us again on a theological battle. See, this was never a battle between Israel and Philistia. This is a battle between God and the gods of the Philistines. And we're going to see that fleshed out in chapter 5. So let's read together chapter 5 really quickly. And that may be about all we'll be able to do is read it. But we'll at least, we'll at least prepare ourselves for it. And the Philistines had taken the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up alongside, uh, alongside Dagon. And the Ashdodites arose on the next day. And look, Dagon was fallen forward on the ground before the ark of God. And they took Dagon and they set him back up in his place. And they arose the next morning and look... Dagon was fallen forward on the ground before the ark of God. And Dagon's head and both his hands were chopped off upon the threshold. His trunk alone remained to him. Therefore the priest of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of the house of Dagon to this day. And the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the Ashdodites, and he devastated them, and he struck them with tumors, Ashdod and all its territory. And the people of Ashdod saw that it was so, and they said, Let not the ark of God stay among us, for his hand is hard upon us, and upon our God, upon Dagon our God. And they sent and gathered to them the Philistine overlords, and they said, What will we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they said, To Gath let the ark of God of Israel be brought. And they brought the ark of the God of Israel. And it happened after they brought it around that the hand of the Lord was against the city, a great panic. 
And he struck the people of the city, young and old, and they had tumors in their secret parts, and they, and they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it happened that the ark of God came to Ekron, and the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought round the ark of, God of, Ish, of the God of Israel to bring death to me and my people. And they sent and gathered the Philistine overlords, and they, and they said, Send the ark of God of the God of Israel back to its place, and let it not bring death to me and my people. For, for there was death panic throughout the city. The hand of God was heavy there, and the people who did not die were struck with tumors, and the town's outcry arose unto heaven. So here we have the, what happens to the ark afterwards. So the, the Philistines take the ark. They think they've really done something. They think they've defeated God, the God of Israel, more than Israel themselves. They think this is a sign that Dagon is better than God. And so they put the ark of the covenant here in, before Dagon. You've got victor and vanquished face to face. The, the ultimate showdown here in the temple of Dagon. And they walk in the next day and Dagon is lying on the ground. You might even say he's bowing before the Ark of God, but they think nothing of it. Any good idol worshiper knows a stiff breeze sometimes can be your worst enemy. You've just got to pick your idol up and move on with your worship service. And so they do that. They pick the idol up, they put him back in place, they come back the next day, and there he's fallen again, but this time there's no accident. His head and his hands have been chopped off, and he has been defeated by, by Yahweh, by the God of Israel here. It's clear that he is completely incapacitated before God. Now, this sets up Dagon's hands being chopped off, sets up the main, the main word that's going to keep coming up throughout this section. I think I asked this in the questions, and I, I did, it was such a simple question, I didn't even know how to word it. What body part is central to the narrative of chapter 5? What a strange wording. But I, I sat there for a while and I couldn't think of anything else. But it's the hand. It's the hand of God versus the hand of Dagon. Whose hand is going to prevail? Dagon's hands are gone before God's hand is even introduced into the scene. Dagon's hands are chopped off. One thing that stood out to me, though, is here is the ark of God in the midst you know, in the, the temple of Dagon. And you've got the, the priests coming in, they're picking up their idol, they're making sure it's in the right place. And it reminded me of the way the Israelites had treated the ark. They had treated the ark of God as if it were an idol, as if this is what's going to save us. So we've got to bring it to the battlefield. God can't, you know, God can't be victorious if, if his ark isn't in the battlefield. We've got to help him out. We've got to bring the ark here. It's exactly the way that, that the Philistines were treating the Dagon. They're putting him back in place. They're making sure that everything is good. They're making sure that he's got it under control. I love Isaiah 9 verse 1, or Isaiah 19 verse 1, which says that before God, the idols are shaken. The idols cannot stand before God. The idols tremble before God. And this is exactly what we see in this, in this section. In the last section, we have a I, I love verses sixteen through or verses six through twelve. We have an inclusio um, where 
with the hand of the Lord, the mighty hand of the Lord being heavy upon the Philistines. So the mighty hand of the Lord is heavy upon uh, the Ashdodites, and he devastates them, and he strikes them with tumors, and Ashdod and its territories. And then in verse, the end of verse 11, and then going into verse 12, the hand of the Lord is heavy there, and the people died and were struck with, and those who did not die were struck with tumors, and the outcry rose to heaven. God's hand is heavy. You remember that word is the same, is the same root word as glory. So again, remember how Eli and his family failed to exhibit God's glory to the people of Israel. God is not failing to exhibit His glory through the heaviness of His hand in sending these plagues upon upon the Philistines. He is showing His power through the heaviness of His hand here. He's showing that you need to fear me with these plagues that He's sending upon the people. Eli may have failed. God does not fail in, in showing His glory to the people. So this... The ark bounces around to three of the five Philistine cities here. It goes all around. And then the last city it's coming to has has read their newspapers and they say, No, we don't want that here. Get it out of here. I don't know why they just keep throwing it around to different Philistine cities. It takes them three times to get the point. And so finally they say, Okay, well, we need to just get rid of this. We need to send this back to the Lord. That's what chapter 6 is going to be about, sending this back to Israel, I should say. So again, in this, in this closing bracket of the inclusio in verse 12, you have the hand of the Lord being heavy and the people's outcry arising to heaven. Now, I find this super interesting. I, I asked, um, I asked my, my brother about this and he said that the only other time that these verbs are used together uh, in Hebrew is in Exodus 2 when the outcry is of the, of the people of Israel as they're in captivity as that outcry is arising to God. And it says that they cried out, they raised their voice and cried out to God. Um, but here it does not specifically say to God but to heaven. So maybe the idea is the Israelites are cry- or the Philistines I should say are crying out to a god, any god who can help. They don't know who specifically they're crying 